Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. McAllen Orsall is a young genetic scientist who discovers she is descended from a wealthy and powerful group that calls themselves Leviathan, whose members claim to be several hundred years old. She is instructed by the group's leader, Senshin, to go to Homer, Alaska, to find the key to an affliction that has been killing members of the Leviathan group, including McAllen's grandmother. After finding her boyfriend killed, she is accused of murder and is now on the run from the authorities. She also knows she is being pursued by the mysterious Black Door Group and the agents of Leviathan. McAllen realizes that her only chance of gaining control in her life is to independently obtain the thing that everyone wants, the mysterious key. McAllen drives to the remote fishing town of Homer, Alaska and charters a boat called the Hail Mary. The boat is captained by Jeffrey Tully and his first mate, Oberlin St. Clair. Tully is a former crew member of Historical Explorations, the group McAllen was instructed to engage. He knows the location of the Cedar Elm, the shipwreck that supposedly obtained the key. However, he refuses to help McAllen for three reasons. One, he has a price on his head due to money he borrowed from Japanese Mafia. He desperately wants to find his own shipwreck called the Alando Cortez that reportedly contains untold treasures. Secondly, a powerful storm is approaching Homer that is causing a recall of all boats in the area back to harbor. And thirdly, he explains that the Cedar Elm has drifted in fishing lanes and is scheduled for demolition. But before McAllen could convince him otherwise, gunfire and explosions erupt in the marina and the Hail Mary is driven off its dock by a barrage of bullets from unknown assassins. The boat has no time for badly needed repairs and resupplies, but is forced to head out to sea into the mouth of a monster storm. After 24 hours of running, Captain Tully tries to evict McCallum from his boat so that he can pursue his own shipwreck, the Orlando Cortez. She refuses to go and instead offers to pay Tully's debt to the Yakuza Mafia. After unexpectedly stumbling on the Cedar Elm, Tully agrees to help McCallum. The team of Tully, Oberlin and McAllen conducts an extensive reconfiguration of the Hail Mary's exploration equipment. 
Tully and McAllen are about to descend to 10,000 feet underwater in the Hail Mary's mini-sub to receive their first glimpse of the Cedar Elm. And now, Chapter 5, A Gift Horse. You ready for this, Tully? I'm ready. The weather has let up a little bit, but I just checked satellite imaging and there's a strong low-pressure system that's hovering and watching us about 100 miles south. The storm that hit Homer might not be done with us yet. You've got to hurry. I promise we'll make it quick. I hope you don't find small spaces distasteful, Ms. McAllen. When I'm with such distinguished company as Captain Tully, I find the experience to be positively delightful. (laughs) I think you're getting the bends before diving. Okay, listen. I've set you up for six hours of air. Normally, we'd have more if I could have hooked up the auxiliary manifold to the submersible, but we didn't have time to load it before we pushed off. Yeah, but we should have at least ten hours with the tanks we have on board. Well, that would have been nice, but if you recall, one blew up on the deck. Oh, yeah. And as I started filling up the remaining tanks, I noticed bullet holes and shrapnel damage to several other tank valves. We're just not running with a full deck right now. This is the best we can do. So, with six hours of air and two hours of travel time each way, you've got less than two hours of bottom time, so no sightseeing while you're down there. Understood. Now, I've attached the ROV directly to the mini-sub's loading cleats, so you've got good structural integrity. I've hijacked power from the backup battery, so you've got about two hours of operating time on the ROV. But the bad news is that if you lose main power down below, you'll have no backup. How much are you paying me for this crap? Probably more than you're worth. Oberlin, how secure are the manipulators on the ROV? Well, they are very versatile tools, But don't forget, you are communicating with the ROV via radio waves, so there will be a certain degree of lag time to the controls. So be very deliberate in your motions. And they're constructed of aircraft-quality titanium, so their security is impervious. Oberlin. Yes? Great job. Pulling all of this together was unbelievable. You... you continue to amaze me all the time. Yes, Oberlin, thank you. Without you, Tully here would have put me on a cargo plane for airdrop in the middle of Denali State Park. (laughs) (laughs) Now you two kids have fun. Will do. Be careful. We'll call you from the bottom of the ocean. The hatch sealed shut above them. The davits on the Hail Mary slowly descended the mini-sub until McAllen felt the floor move suddenly under her. The sub was now released by the Hail Mary and was bobbing in the water as it prepared to descend into the sea below. Whoa! Careful! It's going to be a little rocky until we get to about 40 feet. The seas are still a bit choppy. Just a bit. You need to move your... Yeah, I know, Just but... Just go... Uh, yeah, no. Well, where do I that. sit? There's no chair for me. Yeah, I know. It's pretty tight in here. We had to take out the co-pilot seat to make room for a Geiger counter array. Sounds useful. Not really. We never got the thing to work. Anyway, you should try to sit down on the floor and wedge yourself between the porthole and the CPU. How cozy. Just six more hours. The Hail Mary's mini-sub began its descent into the abyss of the Kodiak Trench. McAllen stared out the porthole near her knees. Tully had almost 180 degrees of clear vision as the nose of the mini-sub was made of a translucent lucite. But McAllen didn't relish the idea of squeezing next to him and peering closely over his shoulder. Instead, she watched with fascination as the vessel seemed to descend in symphony with the declining slope of the seafloor. The seabed looked unlike any McAllen had seen before. 
Her parents had insisted that she become a certified scuba diver at a very young age. McAllen had dived all over the globe, but primarily in tropic or semi-tropic waters, nothing as cold as Alaska. Instead of the azure blue she was used to seeing permeate her underwater environment, everything was a shade of green. Olive green and forest green and Kelly greens. The seafloor seemed so desolate and dusty without the usual complements of coral, sponges and vividly colored sea life. The ocean seemed darker as light green faded to dark and soon the black of the shadows seemed to overcome almost everything McAllen could see. Top, this is bottom. We've just passed 3,000 feet and entering the aphotic zone. What's that? It means we've just descended below the level that sunlight can penetrate. This layer of the ocean remains in perpetual darkness. As we get lower, the oxygen level in the water begins to drop off as well due to the lack of plant life. The only light that we'll see outside of our own is from bioluminescent sea life. The creatures that live below this point have adapted to live in complete darkness. And cold? Yeah, I know. It is cold. I'm only running the heater on half strength to preserve battery power. Good idea, considering we lost our backup battery to the ROV. Have we checked to see if it's working? Nope. Obi said he double-checked it back on the surface. That's usually good enough for me. I don't want to waste the battery time to fire it up. We'll activate the ROV when we hit our maximum operating depth, or MOD. That's not terribly comforting. What if the ROV, I don't know, fizzles out or blows a fuse or something? Then I hope you've enjoyed your ride on Disney World's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Holly, come on, be serious. There's a lot at stake. I have to find what I'm looking for on the Cedar Elm. And what exactly are you looking for on this wreck? I don't think you've explained it to me very well. I told you, it's sort of hard to explain. Well, I've got news for you. We've got some time on our hands. We're 3,000 feet underwater, got more than an hour to go to reach MOD, and I forgot my deck of cards. Seriously, I've got all my eggs in one basket. Your basket. I think I have a right to know what it is you want to do at 10,000 feet under the ocean. <sighs> I'm trying to find the key. The key to what? I really don't know. Oh, lady, you've got a lot more explaining to do. And please don't tell me that it's hard to explain or that I won't believe you, because very soon you could have much bigger problems with me than just being implausible. Okay, but I just don't know where to start. Let's start with the money. Tell me the truth. I think I deserve it. Where did you get that money? <sighs> My great-great-great-grandfather gave it to me. So it's some sort of inheritance or a trust fund? No, no, it's not that. It's... This all started less than a week ago. God, that seems like a lifetime ago. Anyway, I was on my way to teach my morning class at the university that I work for in New York. A doctor stops me and introduces himself as someone who has been treating my grandmother. What's wrong with your grandmother? Well, she's always been one of the strongest, smartest women I've known. A bit of a tough old bird. She raised me after my parents... Uh, after my parents died when I was ten. I love her to death, but I think she's suffering from some form of Alzheimer's disease, only... It's different. She's experiencing more pain than patients typically exhibit in its early stages, and the onset was so fast, I feel like something is killing her. But I can't figure out what. So back to the doctor. He picks me up, and we start driving over to my grandmother's house, and we get T-boned by two guys that grab me and throw me into the car with them. They stick me with something. I pass out. When I wake up, I've been taken back to this mansion where a man introduced himself to me as my great-great-great-grandfather. But Tully... The guy doesn't look a day over 40. That's crazy. Of course, it's crazy, but here's the really weird part. He starts rattling off all these events in my life. Intimate events, Tully. Things that no one else knows. It's like he's known me or been watching me my whole life. 
he said I was part of a group or a clan called Leviathan that was based somewhere very deep under the ocean. Many members of this group are falling ill and dying like my grandmother. This man, Senshin was his name, he gives me five million dollars to help find the key, which is the missing piece to finding the cure. If this Senshin needs the key so bad, why doesn't he find it himself? He said that others might be looking for it and he didn't want them to learn of its location. He didn't think that I'd attract any attention retrieving it. Well, it's pretty clear to me, based on the bullet holes in my boat, that you did attract someone's attention. No, I couldn't have. I specifically drove to Alaska instead of flying so that no one could have any records of my traveling. Instead of chartering historic explorations to find the Cedar Elm, I found out that you used to work for them and you might know where the Cedar Elm is. Nobody is supposed to be looking for me here. You must have made some mistake somewhere. People don't shoot rocket launchers at strangers. Hey, you don't know it was related to me. You admitted yourself that you've made some pretty shady friends. How do you know those guys weren't trying to collect the price on your head? Oberlin thought they were after you. No, I don't think it was them. They were supposed to give me more time. I told them I needed another three weeks to find the Orlando Cortez, the mother load. <laughs> you haven't exactly explained who them is. I think you've got some explaining to do on your own. I guess that's fair enough. As you know, I used to be on a treasure hunting operation called Historical Explorations. We've been hunting for this 17th century galleon called the Orlando Cortez. I guess you could say I had a falling out with the captain, so I left to do my own thing. It's always been my dream to become a treasure hunter, scoping out possibilities, the gambling and hoping for the big score. What plans? What? Back on the Hail Mary, you said all you had left was this boat, some gear, and some plans. What plans? Oh. That's nothing. I, I, I didn't mean anything. Come on, tough guy. You've been getting me to bear my soul. What plans do you have for yourself? Well, they're for a boat. The Hail Mary? <laughs> what, that piece of crap? No, no, definitely not. No, these plans are for a very, very advanced boat. Something nobody's really built yet. It's kind of a fantasy for Oberlin and I. What do you mean? Well, Oberlin's experiences in marine engineering. He spent most of his youth as a mechanic with Jacques Cousteau on the Calypso before it was decommissioned. He knows the ins and outs of boats and marine mechanics like I have never seen. About 10 years ago, he got an offer to be the chief engineer on the largest North Sea offshore rig for Total Oil. Why didn't he take it? Because he loves the chase, the hunt. Treasure hunting is something that gets in your blood. Since I was a boy, I loved reading Sherlock Holmes and the Hardy Boys. Anyway, about 15 years ago, I'm trying to make some money being a boat captain for people a lot richer than me. My boss, the boat owner, is a guy named Ron Bernstock. He was a metallurgic genius that got rich inventing some new material to house satellites in space or something. Anyway, I get invited to work on a project to design a new boat for him, something really unusual. You see, this billionaire I worked for considered himself a real Indiana Jones and wanted to create the ultimate marine research platform. I mean, other guys were trying to build see-through jacuzzi tubs on their yachts, and my guy wanted to build underwater sonar arrays, hyperbaric chambers, ROV bays, the works. Really, it was a dream job to design the ultimate adventure boat and money is no object. My specialty has always been the sea and science of recovery. I'm not a shipbuilder and I'm a pretty lousy mechanic. Well, in walks Oberlin with his perfect Irish accent and he says to my guy, we will build a boat that Cousteau never dreamed of. <laughs> well, this gets Bernstock going. 
He flies the two of us to South Korea, to Olsen's shipyard, the largest in the world. And he pretty much locks Oberlin and I into an office with a monster staff and all the resources we could dream of. And after about nine months and a few million dollars later, we created the Invenios. Invenios? What's that? It means to find and explore in Latin. It was the ultimate marine research vessel. Over 200 feet long, state of the art. It could do things no one had ever dreamt of. Just, just a dreamboat. So, what happened? Where is it? Nowhere. It never got built. Ron Bernstock was killed when he went down over the Aegean Sea. He was a great man and a great boss, and his dreams died with him. Maybe some of mine did, too. The streets aren't exactly lined up with people looking to shell out half a billion dollars to build a science fiction dreamboat. So, what about these plans? Oh, right, uh, the plans. Well, they represent a few million dollars in research. Pretty much theoretical, of course. But still, there have been a lot of nights where Obi and I haven't felt too great about ourselves. But then we roll out these plans, the beautiful blueprints and schematics, and just open a bottle of tequila and pour over them. Not literally, of course. We could look at them for hours. I think it's a combination of both the best work we've ever done with our lives and remembering the best times of our lives. So, when times get tough, you and Obi bond over marine porn? <laughs> I, guess, I guess you're right. <laughs> Yeah, it does sound pretty sad when you put it that way. No, no, it doesn't sound sad at all. To be honest, I think it's pretty amazing. Not many people can hold their dreams in their hands. At least you know where you're heading. <laughs> yeah, deep. Meanwhile, back in Manhattan, Sension, Othello, and Anton have gathered in Sension's office at Sutton Manor. The mood in the room was dour and tense. Sension stood behind his semi-sphere desk, pacing while Othello and Anton sat in a tufted Chesterfield sofa. God damn it, how could this happen? How could you just let her slip through your fingers? Do you realize what she represents? Of course we do. We've been searching high and low for McKellen. She never went back to her apartment or to Amelia's apartment after the... the incident. We had the jet waiting, but she never showed up. There's been no sign of her. Haven't you been able to attune with her? There's been far too much interference with this damned curse bouncing through our atmosphere. Every time it strikes, I can feel myself weakening and my abilities lessening. I had a very clear read on her while she was in the room with me, but I lost her shortly after that. Once she left Sutton Manor, I sensed a great deal of surprise in her, but... But what? I feel like her sense of surprise came in two bursts, and they were not entirely positive emotions. Maybe she was just happy to see five million dollars in her checking account. And then when she thought about all of it, she realized that the money served as evidence that you were telling her the truth about Leviathan, and that a great deal was being asked of her. On the other hand, maybe she just took the money and ran. She was never trained for this, Sension. She was bred for it, Anton. But she doesn't know that. She knows it now. Or at least, she certainly will, if she somehow made it to Alaska. I've checked every flight to every airport in the state. She hasn't made it there. Our reports on the ground show that historical exploration does not lift the harbor in Anchorage either. That's not a good sign. Could they have gotten to her first? Did either of you sense any indication that she was compromised? Ikora did a full scan. She reported no anomalies. How do you know our enemies haven't captured McKellen? Amelia has cloaked her existence for too long. They couldn't have known of her existence. And the Black Door Group? <laughs> Othello, I can honestly say that the Black Door Group is the least of our concerns right now.
the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Back on the mini-sub, deep under the Gulf of Alaska. Top, this is bottom. We're approaching our MOD. I'm going to activate hover mode and try to stabilize our position. I'm activating the ROV and sending it to the Cedar Elm coordinates. I'm getting a little bit of current though. I'm trying to compensate. The mini-sub came to hover at 7,500 feet. The ROV began its descent further downwards, like a long tendril-like appendage of the mini-sub. The power cable connecting the ROV to the mini-sub was anchored to the reserve battery located directly under the cramped cockpit. From the view out of the front porthole, the cord seemed to extend downwards into nothingness. What the hell was that? Just metal fatigue. The bolts are settling and adjusting. It's nothing unusual. It sounds like we're going to break apart. Nah, this tin can ought to hold together. Has the sub ever been this deep? Um, once or twice. A leaks? Ah, our depth is 7,500 feet under the ocean. The pressure on the hull of this vessel at this depth is truly monstrous. 
If we did have a leak, the stream of water shooting out would be at high enough pressure to cut through steel. So if it makes you feel any better, no, we've never had a leak. That didn't make me feel better. Well, maybe this will. Tully, what are you doing? Darkness fell over the entire vessel. A thick, pitch-black, inky darkness that McAllen had never experienced. There was no light anywhere, and she felt suddenly disconnected from her body, as if she had no eyes or limbs. Tully! Don't worry, it's okay. I just shut down all the internal and exterior lights. Why? Because I want to show you something. It's freezing, Tully. Here, come closer. There's a heat vent on the floor here. I want you to look out the main porthole with me. I think you just want me to sit next to you. I've been guilty of worse. Ow! I scrapped my head! Here, take my hand. Thanks, I can't see a thing. That's the whole point. Not a photon of sunlight can penetrate this deep. I think that's incredible. So what do you want to show me? Just wait. McAllen continued to look forward to the clear spherical nose of the sub. She could still see absolutely nothing. Not a speck of light. She waited in silence and blackness, peering out into nothing. And then suddenly, her eyes began to play tricks on her. She imagined she saw a firefly streaking across the bow of the sub. And then another, and another. McCallum realized that her eyes were not playing tricks on her and that she was witnessing one of nature's most bizarre symphonies. Here at 7,500 feet below the sea, with crushing pressure and the most extreme of cold, creatures were alive and thriving, flashing all colors of the rainbow at one another. Mating flashes, warning lights, pulses and streaks of red and blue and green enveloped them. My god, it's beautiful. It looks like starlight. It's it's just astonishing. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. We've turned off everything so they don't get scared, but once they settle down, it's a pretty awesome light show. Wow. That's the ROV. Ugh, lights! It's arrived at the Cedar Elm. It must be closer than we thought. Let me see if we can get some visual imaging. McCallan, can you boot up that screen on your left? Still nothing. Got it. I'm honing in on the image. I don't see anything yet. Still nothing. Remember, there's a lag. Give it a sec. Oh my god. It's... it's huge. Callan Orsel, may I please present to you the Cedar Elm. The ship was enormous and could not be seen end to end. Its hull was covered in large barnacles and urchins the size of basketballs. The ROV glided by block letters that spelled out Cedar Elm. The letters were so large that each one filled the monitor even though the ROV hovered 30 feet away from the port deck. Despite the intensity of the floodlights, only 30 feet of visibility could be gained through the dark green sea. An occasional eel darted for cover as the ROV began its sweep of the ship. Damn, it's lying on its side. That's bad. It's going to make penetrating the wreck more difficult. Some of the hatch entries could be blocked. The interior will seem disorienting as well. We have to be careful. There's probably a lot of debris hanging off the interior walls and ceilings that could tangle up the ROV. That would be bad. No, that would be catastrophic. The ROV is fastened to the mini-sub by our loading cleats. That means we're tied at the hip with no means to break free. If it gets tangled, we're stuck here. So, be careful, Tully. That's why you pay me the big bucks. So this is your show, McAllen. Where do you want to look for your lost key? The ship is huge. I don't know where to begin. 
That's it, McCallan. We gotta wrap it up. But we haven't found the key yet. We haven't even searched the front of the boat. McCallan, if we don't get out of here soon, we won't have the power to ascend. Remember, we don't have backup battery. I know, I know, I know. But Ascension said, what did he say? He said, he said I'd know it when I'd see it. Well, we haven't seen squat outside of hogfish, rust, and sand, and I'll tell you- Wait, 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 Tully, wait! Stop the ROV. What? No, Tully, just listen to me. Stop the ROV. Put it in hover mode. Okay. Now turn off all the external lights on the ROV, just like you did before on the mini-sub. Why? Just do it, Tully. Drive the damn bus. I'll drive your bus straight into... Okay, you got it, McCallum. Enter darkness. Wow, I can't see a thing. Not even the ship. What did you expect? Just wait, Tully. Wait. Turn the ROV 180 degrees to the left. Okay, but I don't know what... Look! There! There's something glowing. It's at the front of the ship. That's... that's weird. Look how bright it is, Tully. It could just be some squid or something. Come on, Tully, let's check it out. Okay, I'm moving the ROV to the bow. The glow, it's getting brighter. Is it me or is it pulsing? Maybe, it's really weird. Okay, it looks like it's coming from the cargo bay. Can we fit the ROV inside? It's a little tight, but I think a steady hand can get it through. You can do it, baby. Baby? All right, we're inside. It looks like a cargo bay. It's too small to be the main one. That looks like some cargo containers off to the right. Yeah, but that glow is coming from the left. Jesus, it's getting bright. I'm gonna dim down the screen. The glow seems alive. There! See all those fish? There's a swarm of them! Eels? No, no, they're called rat tails. They can grow up to six feet. My god, I've never seen so many of them. They normally don't give off this much light, but there must be hundreds of them. This is crazy. Maybe it's some sort of mating ritual. Tully, are all of the lights still off? Yeah, yeah. I even turned off the small blinking nav lights and it looks like daylight in there. Tully, hit the floodlights. Oh my Holy god. Holy shit! A woman's face illuminated the video screen that McCallan and Tully were watching. The face seemed deeply carved into some sort of silver-gray metal. Her mouth was open and her lips were peeled back slightly to reveal the outlines of teeth. Despite being carved in metal, the woman's portrait seemed frighteningly lifelike. It was unclear whether she was shouting in joy or in pain. The rat tails that were swarming inside the cargo bay instantly scattered from the floodlights and raced out of the cargo hatch. The carved woman stared back at Tully and McCallan. Tully? Yeah? I've seen this face before. Yeah? Me too. Where? McCallan. She looks just like you. The ROV panned backwards and revealed the entirety of the object. It was an oval slab of metal with a flat base. The face of the slab was adorned in carvings and protrusions. The carvings were abstract towards the bottom, but as one looked towards the head of the slab, the random markings seemed to converge into a clear outline of a young woman. The carvings protruded outward as if the woman's neck and head were leaping out of the slab. The woman's facial expression seemed agitated and ran a chill up the spine of McCallan and Tully. What the hell is this thing? Back up a little bit. It's a sarcophagus. A what? It's a coffin, although a highly decorated one. Like the one King Tut was buried in, the one you always see pictures of. It was considered a layer of protection for the royalty that were buried inside. Well, we're not spending any more time in this creep show. We're behind schedule on our battery time. I'm pulling out the ROV and we're going topside. Tully, don't you see? This is the key. This is it. There must be something inside, something that the Leviathan group needs. This is what we've been looking for. McCallan, I gotta be honest. This doesn't look like any kind of key. You're thinking too literally. It doesn't have to be an actual physical key to unlock a box. It could be the solution to a problem, a cure to whatever has been killing my people. Your people? 
man, that was really weird. I didn't mean to say that. They're obviously not my people. I mean, I'm related, sort Some of. Some wacko told you that he was your grandfather. That doesn't mean... Okay, I know. I know. It was just a slip of the tongue. Fine, fine. Just don't get sucked into any delusions of grandeur. You've got a bill to pay when we get topside. You'll get your money, Tully. But not unless you figure out how to drag this thing back into the Hail Mary. Okay, let's take a look at this thing. It seems to have some protrusions on the back. Maybe we can utilize. What are those? Those moldings? Yeah, I, I see that. They look decorative, but pretty solid. Maybe we could use those for the loading points. We can try. Let's let's try to get the ROV in position. It's a little bit narrow for the articulators, but I think I can... Almost. Got it, got it. I think I've got a firm grip. I'm tightening the clamps on the left and the right side to make sure it won't slip. Do you have it? Yeah. Yeah. We've got this. We've got a solid grab. Can you drag it out of that cargo bay? I'm vectoring all the propellers upwards, but it doesn't seem to budge much. Could it be caught on something? I don't think so. I'm not seeing anything around. The radio. What? Don't you get it? The whole secret to this daisy chain configuration was radio waves, right? There's the emergency signal on the ROV if we ever lost contact with it that activates its lift bags. That's the one we use to give it navigation instructions, right? Yeah, so... So, let's use its original purpose to activate the ROV lift bags while it's holding on to the key. That way, it will be lighter and easier to move. We should be able to get it out of the cargo bay. God damn, you're a smart girl. We always use lift bags when we're hauling treasure. Never but... thought of it with the ROV. Four large balloon-like bags began to inflate on each of the top four corners of the rectangular ROV. The inflation continued until each of the bags began to crowd into the other. The sarcophagus key began to rock slightly as it pulled against the ROV, before it lifted off the shipwreck floor, leaving a faint trail of sediment behind it. We got it. Yes, we can start floating this thing out. I can't wait to see it. It's an incredible find, whatever it is. Well, let's just do it quickly. We passed any reasonable turnaround time for our batteries. We have less than a quarter tank left and half the journey. Tully's palms sweated over the ROV controls. The sharp, rusty edges of the ship could have caused a puncture in one of the lift bags, which would ruin the chances of the key's recovery. With a collective sigh of relief inside the mini-sub, the ROV, with its powerful lift bags inflated, gingerly maneuvered out of the cargo bay of the Cedar Elm. From the video screen, McAllen and Tully could see the broad side of the Cedar Elm stretching out of visibility. The hundreds of barnacle clusters made the ship look cancerous and death-like. Tully didn't want to look at the wreck for another second. But then, something caught his eye, a red dot flashing. At first, Tully thought it could be another small glowfish, flashing its belly in hopes of attracting a mate. But then he saw another, and another, until most of the visible surface of the Cedar Elm was covered in the little red dots. McCallan. I see it, Tully. What the hell are those? I've got a very bad feeling about this. Why are you taking the ROV closer? You said that we have to get out of here. Glowing red dots aren't moving. Fish would be scared of the ROV and all the lights. Those dots aren't moving, McCallan. Oh my god, holy shit. What? What is it? Those aren't barnacles. Those are depth charges. This thing is about to blow up. Tully, we gotta get out of here. We gotta get out of here. The Cedar Elm exploded.
You have been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles. The Leviathan Chronicles was written and created by Christoph Lepupka, produced by Robin Shaw, produced and musical composition by Luke Allen, directed by Nobi Nakanishi. For a full list of cast and crew, or to purchase the ad-free director's cut, go to leviathanchronicles.com. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.